The Data Reaper podcast is a companion which provides extra insight into the weekly report found at ViciousSyndicate.com. Join us for a deeper dive into the numbers to help you improve your Hearthstone game. Hello and welcome to the Data Reaper podcast. I am your host, Ridiculous Hat, and I am joined by the Hearthstone professor, Zach O. Zach, how you doing? How you doing, Hat? Doing all right. It's, um... We're going to enter a very interesting week of Hearthstone in the next seven days. Well, I guess a pretty boring six days and then a very exciting seventh day. Uh, because today they announced the mini set The Wailing Caverns will be released seven days from the time of this recording on uh, Thursday, June 3rd. Yep, we're getting a mini set next week, uh, right on time, just when the meta is kind of stabilizing around a particular class. Uh, so things are going to shake up hopefully, and we're going to see new cards. There is a reveal season, a short one, but it's uh, welcome nevertheless. Going to be able to speculate about cards as well. So to get the housekeeping out of the way, we're not going to have a podcast next weekend. We're not going to have a report next week because of the mini set, but we are going to have a podcast sooner because we're looking to do a card preview episode on Wednesday the 2nd. So you'll hear this on Saturday, but we're hoping that by Wednesday you have another episode in your feed. And uh, I'll be away that weekend, but the following week we're hoping to get a podcast out to you. Uh, and we should have the report in two weeks on Thursday, June 10th, after a week of post-Wailing Caverns data. It's not going to be a week, more like, uh, well, it's going to be data related to five days, first five days. But yeah, you can consider that happening a week after. Uh, but yeah, so we're not going to have a podcast of early patch impression, but we're giving you a bonus podcast before the mini set launches about our thoughts regarding the new cards. And we, as of this recording, we have yet to see a single new card. Probably by the time this podcast is out, we'll know quite a few, but we'll talk about them uh, this Wednesday. So check that out. And looking at the report this week, we're not going to go in-depth on the current meta, because right now there are three kinds of decks. There are Paladin decks. There are decks that beat Paladin some of the time. And there are decks that don't beat Paladin very much. And that's really it. Those are your options. Yeah, that's kind of it. Um, you see uh, a lot of decks that uh, struggle against Paladin falling off. Paladin's gaining traction. is off-build, uh, cleaning up. Libin Paladin also has uh, things to improve. Other than that... You only see developments in Priest and Demon Hunter. The meta is kind of shaping up to be, like, solved over the next few days or a week. By that time, we're going to have the mini set coming in right on time. So there is not much to say about the current meta that's particularly interesting or expands on what we've already said in the report, which is why we're going to take advantage of this time to have a special podcast right now. Not discussing the Hearthstone meta that you see today, but discuss Hearthstone meta dynamics in general. This is a subject that I think other content creators rarely touch upon that I think could be very interesting to have a podcast about because... Um, we often talk about, you know, 
everyone's talking about tier lists and a deck's overall win rate and its matchups, but everyone is also treating the meta as this abstract term that defines the fabric of strategies that you see in the game, in the format. But nobody's talking about how do these forces shape up the meta? Is, is the meta truly an abstract term or can we break it apart into pieces that can we, we can easily and logically, even scientifically understand? And then we, by discussing the meta in vague terms, we begin to understand what the pieces are and how the meta is shaped. So I hope that this podcast will be enlightening for a lot of players regarding the subject and will help establish a stronger language of communication. And listeners, I should tell you, Zach has been so excited to do this, he won't even let me see his notes. I'm live reacting. You're going to get the live reactions. Hat is basically part of the audience here, and I just told him I trust him that he's able to move this conversation along as well, but I want him to be completely raw where he's not prepared and I'm starting to touch upon the subject, and he has no idea what I'm actually going to talk about. Like, he has not heard this before as well. So he's going to be part of you guys. He's going to act as the audience as well as I go through this. So the first thing I want to convey is why is this subject important? Um, because now you're going to say, oh, Zach was about to ramble on about some scientific uh, professory subject that we don't care about. But I think that anyone who has an open mind and interested in the depth of the Hearthstone meta will be interested by this subject as well as whoever's interested in game design in general. So first of all, as a player, you can benefit from understanding meta dynamics by, I think, three vectors. One is that a deeper study of the meta can help you become a better deck builder if you understand what makes strategies inherently successful or not successful. That can assist you in solving puzzles that you haven't encountered before. It's relevant when you evaluate new cards, when you identify promising interactions, when you build new decks, when you optimize them. So you can improve your game in the discovery phase of Hearthstone, and that's often the most fun part of the game, right? So you can become better at the discovery phase of Hearthstone. Secondly, this knowledge helps you make better out-of-game choices. Other than just going to Vicious Syndicate and reading the report, which is a way you can really educate yourself through mimicry, through the work of other people, you can also become a better deck chooser and a back deck refiner, even in a settled meta. When you're more aware of specific mechanics, when you're more aware of what potential weaknesses certain strategies possess and how you can best exploit them, you're more likely to find solutions and you're more capable of predicting the next trend of the meta, building the next rising strategies. Uh, or finding some card that's underrated. And thirdly, and I think that's the most important thing, it can help you be a better in-game player because a deeper understanding of the meta also makes you a better player through sharpening a sharper understanding of how matchup dynamics go. Because if you understand meta dynamics better, 
you're also able to navigate matchups better because you're better at identifying what each deck needs to do in order to win. Identifying your win condition is a key skill in Hearthstone. And I think understanding meta dynamics help you achieve that as well. So as a player, you can benefit from understanding the subject better. But also as a community member, you can benefit because we often see like in social media uh, feedback that's conveyed to the developing team, team five. And often that feedback is has a lot of word salad with a lot of buzzwords that don't really mean anything. And team five can't really act upon it because very often the language that is used is like you can't really understand what the player wants. Like the player is going to complain about something or say this feels bad to play or this feels uh, not right. But if there's no logical pattern to that information that's being conveyed, it's going to be tougher to communicate your thoughts and feelings on the matter. And what if understanding meta dynamics will also help you understand why a deck becomes too powerful why a deck is too limiting. Maybe a deck doesn't have the highest win rate, but maybe it really feels bad to play. If we can also explain it in a logical matter, in the language of meta dynamics, I think that could be helpful for communications with the design team. This is a big conversation. This is a big talk, Zach. Yeah, if you're, if you're interested in game design, you should be interesting in this, interested in this episode. So... This is the, these are the benefits. I'm sure there are more benefits, but this is what I'm trying to convey. I'm trying to take the meta, this abstract term that you often hear every day, and actually turn it into something that you can even touch, that you can understand what the pieces are. So this is what I'm trying to do. It's, it's not going to be easy for me, but I'm going to do my best in order to try and convey that information. You're trying to take the things that you think about every day and what you see when you look at the data and translate it. Yeah. Basically, I'm trying to turn the abstract term into pieces that are more easily understood. So let's begin. And I'm going to start with picking apart what the meta is, right? The meta is basically a fabric of strategies that see play and see success, some success in, uh, in any given format. And there are forces that define the meta. Meta is, does not exist without the forces that define it. And this is, this is a question that seems daunting at first, but it's honestly pretty easy to understand. So what is the meta? A meta is basically part of gameplay. A meta is determined by gameplay. So if we want to understand what the meta is, we need to look at Hearthstone gameplay. Break down the gameplay elements, you will be easily able to identify the gameplay dynamics which define the meta dynamics so you look at the hearthstone board you look at the hearthstone client you start a game what do you see what are the gameplay elements the main ones that you see there is the board where minions are placed and where they can attack from and then there's everything else that outside the board that affects gameplay as well. You have your life total, your mana cost, the cards in your deck, but most importantly, the cards in your hand. All of these share a common characteristic 
and they're best described as resources, right? You have your life total resource, you have your mana resource, and you have card advantage. You have card um, resource. Off-board resources, and then on-board resources. So we have the board, and we have our resources. So every Hearthstone game is fought on both of these fronts. It's a battle for board control, but also a battle for resources. So there is an onboard battle happening, but there's also an offboard battle happening, and both of them affect each other. They interact with each other. If you control the board or deny your opponent board control, right? It's important for in every Hearthstone game, no matter what Hearthstone deck you play, if you're able to control the board or deny your opponent control of the board, you're far more likely to win. You get something that often people use the buzzword called tempo. Oh no. But tempo oh, but no. tempo is not a real tempo is not a real word. And it's best described as a word that I often use, which is initiative. Thank right? you. Yeah. Yeah. I started I, I knew exactly what's gonna happen. Yeah. And you were going to fear that I was going to use tempo throughout this conversation. No, I knew no, you wouldn't. Initiative is the word. Yep, it's the the two things that matter, like initiative and value, but tempo is this bizarre, muddy thing. And a lot of what I think you're attempting to clarify here as well, conversation gets so difficult when the word tempo comes up because it means a different thing to every person that uses it, and you can't have any kind of conversation with shorthand if you have to explain it every time. Yeah, because tempo has become this buzzword that people really... Most of them don't really understand what that means. They can kind of imagine what it is, but based on the gameplay, but tempo is basically initiative. Having the initiative. If you have initiative, you can push damage and reduce your opponent's life total. You can uh, make value trades. You basically determine how the matchup goes. You're basically dictating how the gameplay plays out. Yeah. The person with initiative is the person that gets to dictate trades because then you get to decide, you know, are my minions removal or are they damage? How do I get to use this resource? It's a resource that is available to one person at a time. Yep. So you have uh, a situation where if you have the initiative, then you can also create value trades. You're pressuring your opponent, so you're forcing them to make suboptimal plays in order to get back to the board. That can also indirectly allow you to get card advantage as well. But card advantage itself is also an important concept, and that's more of the resource battle, right? If you have card advantage, you have more cards in hand, you have more options, you're more likely to find an optimal play. Card advantage in hand also means that you have more means to affect the board. The person with the card advantage over a long game will eventually also win board since they have more ways to affect the board. And whenever you run out of cards, wherever you lose the card advantage battle, your ability to control the board is something that is temporary. It's it's not going to last for long. Once you lose your hand, you're going to also lose the board. Because as we said, the battlefield, if you win the resource battle, you're eventually going to win the board battle. So you have two big concepts, two elements 
which are initiative and resources, the onboard battle and the offboard battle. And both of them are imperative for every Hearthstone deck to be successful. No Hearthstone strategy ignores any of these concepts, even the most passive ones that you think about, like the OTK ice block type of things, they care about initiative. And even the most aggressive decks still care about resources. So every Hearthstone deck does not decide between the two, but it balances between the two. It finds a balance between initiative and resources. So if we could split all Hearthstone strategies into two primary archetypes, it would be how they prioritize these two gameplay elements. It's not aggro mid-range combo control. No, those are products of a term terminology that came from MTG. And this terminology is often inaccurate because it leads to false terminology and then people don't really understand what this deck's role in the meta is. And very often, that terminology leads to people thinking that a deck is prioritize one of the elements and not the other when it's the exact opposite. So there are two types of decks. There are two types of arc, big archetypes or super archetypes, I would call them. The first is the initiative-focused decks. The initiative-focused decks, they prioritize taking control of the board in the early game in order to inflict repetitive damage to the opponent through minion combat. All of these decks... Their bread and butter is taking control of the board and snowballing it. They are typically known as aggro decks or mid-range decks. And they rely on summoning minions. Now, the point I want to make is that there is no clear-cut line that separates what you are aware of, the traditional labeling of what is an aggro deck and a mid-range deck. It's very subjective. It can change from a person to person, from a meta to another, and it's entirely semantics. It's not important at all in order to understand meta dynamics. Because what makes aggro and mid-range different is basically where they align in the resource initiative spectrum. Both of them, both of these archetypes with through the old terminology, are basically initiative-focused decks. It's just that what you call typically mid-range decks have a bigger lean towards resources. I'll get to this later as well. And then you have the other super archetype, which is resource-focused decks. They focus more on resources, on reaching a win condition, a target goal, at a later point in the game rather than depending on the early board control to win a game. Now, of course, they would like to have board control. Sometimes they could look to gain board control, but mostly it is to deny the opponent control of the board in order to bridge into whatever power spike they're setting up to later. Yeah, and if you go if you go turn two, Sethic, turn three, Apotheosis... You're still a, you're still a resource heavy deck. You just now also have the ability to control the board or smack your opponent in the face. It doesn't change what your deck is trying to do. It's just an option. You're denying your opponent the ability to gain initiative. 
which is great if a resource-focused deck plays against an initiative-focused deck and is able to deny initiative, it's far more likely to win the game. But is that deck, is Control Priest running Sethic Veilweaver, a deck that inherently, from the moment the game starts, looks to prioritize initiative in order to win Hearthstone games? No. No, of course not. And that's why Doomsayer was such a strong card uh, before rotation, because you would play it on turn two. Has to- you're... Oh. You're exactly, you know what? You know what? I wanted to say Doomsayer as an example. That was my next sentence. I'll edit it. I'll edit it out. No, no. I want, no, because I want people to understand we're on the same wavelength here already. Yeah. Because Doomsayer is a card that often people think about it as a passive card. However, it's a very powerful initiative focused card because once it goes off, the player who had the Doomsayer gains the initiative. It's a really good way to deny initiative from your opponent. So what is what are resource-focused decks? The key is that they don't look to win through traditional initiative-focused matters, which is developing board and hitting face with it and snowballing a board lead. That's not how they look to win more Hearthstone games. They're looking to a power spike at some point later in the game. They're looking to set things up, assemble resources that allow them to do that. Now, traditional labeling often calls them control or combo decks, depending on the nature of the win condition. You know, if it deals 50 damage, people start calling it a combo deck. But if it like plays more of an attrition game, then people call it control deck. But that labeling is often stuck in needless semantics because sometimes there's like this control deck, but it has a combo win condition. And then people start, oh, this is a mid-range value deck. And they, they go into all these lengths to trying to explain what this deck is when it doesn't actually matter. What matter is this is a resource-focused deck that looks to power spike at some point later in the game and set that up. Um, the the thing about resource-focused decks is that their win conditions are far more varied, right? While initiative-focused decks are based on board control and pushing damage through minions, pretty much no matter what deck it is, some of them have more burn, some of them have less burn, but they all do that thing. Uh, resource-focused decks can can feel very different from each other. Even though they are the same super archetype, Lifesteal Demon Hunter plays very differently from Control Warrior. But they're both resource-focused decks. That's the point. And the the traditional archetyping that we think about, there are, uh, Hearthstone has a lot of really weird examples that are hybrids or don't fit the common, you know, aggro mid-range combo control archetypes all that cleanly. Because the way you're talking, Zach, a Glowfly Swarm deck sure sounds like it's actually resource-focused. But... People might call it, well, I don't know what they'd call token Is that an aggro deck? Is that a combo deck? But it's more about assembling all the resources so you can build up for the big swing turn. And you don't really develop initiative unless you draw the gibberling. Kind of interesting to think about and these decks in what different is form. Spell Mage? What is Spell Mage? What is Poison Rogue? What are these decks? There are yeah. a lot of unique decks in Hearthstone that really don't fall into the traditional labeling. And the reason is not because it's complicated. It's because the labeling sucks. Yeah. The labeling sucks. Work. Well, we it had this discussion work. for the entire time Soul Demon Hunter was in standard until they nerfed the three drops and then people stopped caring because Blade Dance was uh, you know was a bad card at three. What is Soul uh, Demon Hunter? Is it an aggro deck, a mid-range deck, is it a control deck, it's a combo deck? You could have you could have reasonably said all of these things. Um but yeah, the labeling, the traditional labeling just doesn't apply because the traditional labeling 
is not in tune with meta dynamics. It's not in tune with what makes what determines these archetypes is the gameplay elements. And there's since there's no focus on that, we just call them based on how they feel then you miss out on what they are and what their role in the meta is. And understanding their role also helps you understand how their matchups um, play out. And how you beat them. Yes, exactly. So, as I said, you have the initiative-focused decks, you have the resource-focused decks. But what's important to understand is that even though, again, I will reiterate this, initiative-focused decks still care about resources. They're just focused on initiative. They still want card draw. They still want to get generation if they can. But the point is that they need those resources just to keep loading the board so that they can keep playing minions and pressuring the opponent. You don't want to just play Wisps, right, and have great initiative in the early game, but you fizzle out after two turns and run out of cards. No, you need to strike a balance. The same for resource-focused decks. You're not going to play 5-10 drops just because you want to win the value battle. If you're going to lose initiative in the early game and get snowballed out of control by any deck, you're not a good deck. So you still need to care about initiative. And every Hearthstone deck cares about that. Yep. If you look at like the past three builds of Face Hunter, Face Stalker is a value card that keep, helps you keep initiative. Voracious Reader was around. You look currently, they all play Barack Kotobane. It's you just and quick shot can do a little bit of both. Yeah. So you care about resources, but you focus on initiative. That's what's important. So now we understand what the main actors are in, in the play that we call the Hearthstone meta. So let's envision the formation of a new meta. We envision the gameplay elements. Now we understand that the meta is determined by these two major gameplay elements called resource and initiative. And everything starts with them. On board, off board. Remember that. So a new meta begins, usually with the launch of an expansion, and you have cards and classes thrown into the fire of battle. Just imagine like a brawl, right? You have an all-out brawl and a chaotic phase of the meta's evolution. You can think of what defines the meta as defining the borders of the meta spectrum. Imagine we have a spectrum, and on one edge you have resources and on the other you have initiative so the cloud of ideas and strategies solidifies in a coherent pattern a coherent spectrum that defines the meta the spectrum and what is this process it's a process that determines the rules on how to succeed in the game the rules of the game are already determined it's a hearthstone game but the rules to succeed in the game are determined by the formation of a meta And how does that happen? It's because the resources and the initiative, these elements battle against each other in order to determine how many resources are we required to have and how much do we need to focus on initiative in the game. Uh, people, when you when you talk when you discuss about like an everyday meta discussion, you talk about oh this meta is becoming more greedy. That's what happens here. It means that the resource end of the spectrum, it's it's starting to pull more of its weight towards that direction. That's when the meta is becoming greedier. Now, when a meta shapes, there are three battles. Three battles are fought on three front lines. 
The first is that the initiative-focused decks, they battle against each other. What do they battle for? Early game board control. Who, which decks can set the initiative? Which decks can consistently win initiatives against its archetypical rivals? What's determined is what is the best game plan to seek to find initiative in the early game? How do you find board control, early game board control in the game of Hearthstone in this format? Once that's determined, right? If there are decks that are initiative focused, but they cannot consistently win early game board control against their rivals, they either need to start leaning towards initiative in order to try to outvalue these decks, or they just disappear because they don't have the means. Like if you're an aggro deck and you cannot win early game board control, what are you doing, right? You're gone. Then there's another battle which is the resource-focused decks battle. They battle against each other in order to determine which strategies carry the most effective power spikes, the most effective win conditions in the late game. If you have a resource-focused deck that tries to assemble its resources during a game, has some sort of game plan, but that game plan, the execution is not effective or it's not consistent or it's easy to play around, then that deck is also going to disappear. So the resource-focused decks battle against each other in order to determine which are the most consistent, efficient, and fast win conditions that are available in this format. And fast is important because the faster you get to your win condition, the more likely you are to beat another deck that has a win condition of its own in the late game. If you consistently can win on turn eight and you're facing a deck that can only win on turn 15, you're majorly favored. And then the third battle is the one that I described in the beginning, which is the battle between initiative and resources. They battle against each other as well. They're trying to pull away from each other. What is determined in this interaction is the weight and importance of these elements in the format. Uh, and basically, the spectrum borders are defined. Everything that's outside of these borders, like initiative, you're playing wisps and like, 21 drops in your deck, that's probably not going to work. Or resources, you're playing 5, 10 drops, that's not going to work. So the borders, in order to succeed in the game, are defined. So these are the three battles that determine how a Hearthstone meta is formed. All right. I've got a very simple real-world meta example that illustrates all three of these with two decks. The Rise of Shadows meta. Initiative-focused decks. Weapon Rogue versus the world. Only Weapon Rogue really made it. Resource-focused text, Dr. Boom Control Warrior. Nothing else really made it. Third battle, initiative versus resources. It was those two against each other. Yep. That's a really good way to define the meta spectrum for Rise of Shadows. You had Rogue, which excelled at early, early game board control, and you had Warrior, which excelled at late game anything when when it comes to value battles, when it came to the board control battles in the late game, Warrior was second to none. Those decks were the meta-defining decks of Rise of Shadows. They define the initiative line and they define the resource line. Very good example, Hat. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, now, why is this good? Why are, is this determination good? Is because very often... You look at people um, labeling, mislabeling things based on the traditional labeling of decks. For example, what is Jadruid? I've often remember people call Jadruid a mid-range deck or Miracle Rogue is a mid-range deck. No, 
those are resource-focused decks. They can play for tempo, what you call tempo. They can definitely fight for the board, but they're looking to spike later in the game. Generating Jade Golems is the classic example of sacrificing some early game tempo, some early game advantage in order for, for a late game payoff. Now, if they can fight for the board well as too, while reaching that power spike, then they're very successful. That's what makes them su successful. But when you call a deck that's resource-focused, when you call it mid-range, you miss the point of the deck. Well, I'm glad you brought up Miracle Rogue, too, because Miracle Rogue is one of those decks of which there are many that are hard to classify because you totally kill people on turn six sometimes. Even in the current meta. In the current yeah. meta, you can go turn one plunder or turn two neophyte and just get them and then kill them with wicked stabs. Yeah, but is that your primary game plan? Is that what you're looking to do in most Hearthstone matchups? No. If you could, if you wanted as Rogue to, to do that, you would just play, you know, Spy Mistress into Delinquent and just kill them. But yeah. Miracle Rogue naturally doesn't do that. It looks to uh, have mid-game power spikes. It looks to have swings. And it looks to assemble a late-game combo as well. Now, you can treat Alex Tenwa you as a combo, but... Finding Jandis Shadow Step is also a combo. It's also a power spike that you're trying to find later in the game, and you're not, no, f which is why you're not completely focused on just pressuring through like the initiative focused decks do. Right. Well, and you look at the best Mulligan in Miracle Rogue. Octobot does not really give you a lot of initiative. It gives you the yeah. resource. It gives you mana, and so that's that's you translate that resource into more resources and and more initiative. And you use that to swing the board. But you don't look at a card like Octobot versus a card that's designed solely for initiative, uh, Intrepid Initiate. Th those are very clearly Tunnel different draw, things. Mana Worm. Yeah. You know, aggressive yeah. cards. Decks, uh, cards that aggro decks play that have stats and put immediate pressure on the opponent and the, and the mana response. So, uh, what's I want people to understand most importantly is that Meta-defining decks are not necessarily always the decks that succeed the most in a meta. You can have many decks in the meta that don't define the borders or define the rules for the game for a deck to be successful, but they can excel within that spectrum. Um, I can give you an example of this expansion. Initially, when Barons launched, Paladin had zero mana first day of school, Crab Rider, which wasn't nerfed, Hand of a Doll, Sword of the Fallen with three charges. It was an early game powerhouse. No deck was capable of beating it in the early game. No deck was capable of consistently winning the initiative against Paladin in the first few turns. Paladin was definitely the early game meta-defining deck. However, what did Team 5 do? Team 5 addressed, they identified that Paladin was oppressive in the early game, and they nerfed two of its most powerful early game board control cards, which were Crab Rider and First Day of School. What happened then? Did you say they nerfed First Day of School? Mm. I mean, they reworked First Day of School. It's no longer an initiative card. It's no longer it's a resource card now. It's a resource card now. So what happened? What? How did Paladin adjust? It's really interesting. Suddenly, Paladin started playing Nazoth in Secret Paladin. It started to up the curve. Why? Because Paladin no longer dominated early game. The early game was dictated by other decks that were able to outpace it. 
So now it needed to lean towards resources. Now it said, okay, if I cannot excel at taking the early game initiative, I need to have a better backup plan. I need to have a stronger mid game and a stronger late game. And that deck started to move towards the resource end of the spectrum. It's still an initiative focused deck. However, it became from what people traditionally call a pure aggro deck into more of a mid-range deck. And I'm saying this term with disgust because I don't want to use that terminology. I'm only using it just so that you guys can understand what I'm saying. Yeah. It illustrates the change in deck building there and that people were, well, no longer afraid of dying to Crab Rider, so you can go back to playing your nine drops. Yeah. So you have a situation where... Paladin became more of a, a not a meta-defining deck by definition of how to win the early game, which are the decks that set the rules here. And it's not defining anything in the late game either. It's not resource-focused. Uh, you look at decks like Miracle Rogue and Priest, if like if the game goes long, they're going to win that matchup. Or if you let Spell Mage, um, if you give it time, <laughs> it's going to win because it's got a strong late game through... Um, you know, uh, Encanter's Flow, once that gets going, the card draw gets going, it finds its damage and it wins. So Paladin still needs initiative. It just moved a little bit towards the resources because it can no longer dominate initiative. So the me- so balancing it definitely impacted that. And I can give you many historical examples of when... Now, once you have that terminology, you start to understand that decks can be broken even when they don't have the highest win rate. When does that happen? When do people complain often? It's when the meta spectrum becomes limited by something. And I want to give you two historical examples that will open your eyes. The first example I want to give you is Journey to Ngoro Quest Rogue. You remember that mm-hmm. deck? What oh, was I remember it? Quest Rogue. Is it an initiative-focused deck or is it a resource-focused deck? That's actually it's a really t- interesting question. I think. I mean, think about. I mean, think how I defined it. What, I'm pretty sure it's resource focused. Exactly, it is a yeah. resource focused deck. Why it's looking to set up, assemble resources, assemble, complete the quest in order to reach a power spike later in the game. Yeah, and the the first iteration, it would just kill you. But also, even if it didn't have the boars in the deck hands, it would just run every control deck out of clears because your threat density was crazy high. Yeah, but the point is that it was a resource-focused deck that reached its win condition, its power spike, on turn 5-6. It had one of the most, the fastest and most effective win condition any resource deck we've ever seen in standard format. And while they can get even faster, but the point is, it was a resource-focused deck with an extremely fast win condition. And that win condition was not preventable by other resource-focused decks. And those decks just died out in the Ingoro meta. You just didn't see any other resource-focused decks because you could not compete. You could not outlast the win condition. The win condition was so fast. Like turn six, turn seven, you were dead if you were another resource-focused deck. So people complained, all the control decks died because of Quest Rogue, even though the deck didn't have the highest win rate. And why didn't it have the highest win rate? What happened here? What happened is that Quest Rogue cut 
the meta spectrum to be very narrow. The resource focus, it was so dominant, it pushed all other classes to the other end of the spectrum because the only way to beat and compete with Westworld was to play for initiative. You had to pressure them. You had to kill them before they reached that power spike. So the Angora meta was a highly diverse, aggressive meta full of initiative-focused decks such as Token Druid, Token Shaman, Secret Mage, Pyre Warrior, Murloc Paladin. All of these decks destroyed Quest Rogue and were heavily reliant on initiative. But the resource-focused decks kind of died out. There was one deck, though, had that you loved, that was very successful and was resource-focused, and that was Angoro Freeze Mage or Gunther Mage or whatever you want to call it. And the reason is, is because it had tools that could outlast the quest rogue long enough. Frost Nova, Blizzard, Ice Block outlast enough turns of the quest rogue post its achievement of the win condition and quest completion to burn them down with uh, fireballs and such and frostbolts. It, ha- it could buy enough time. It could force a 50-50 matchup with Quest Rogue, which established it as a meta contender in the resource-focused spectrum. So that meta was extremely unique and was extremely interesting because of the extreme interaction of Quest Rogue with the rest of the meta. And Quest Rogue back then, back then I did not have the deep understanding of the meta dynamics that I have now, but now I can tell you after learning about this, for long enough, I can confidently say that Quest Rogue, even though it had a win rate that was sub-50 for a long time in that expansion, was inherently broken. Why? Not because it had the highest win rate, but it set very extreme rules to succeed in the Hearthstone game. Remember, meta spectrum, how do you succeed in a Hearthstone meta? When that thing is too narrow and extreme, that and influenced by a specific deck, even if that deck doesn't have the highest win rate, it could be a contender to be nerfed. And you often see it when resource-focused decks have win conditions that are too fast, that come online too too fast, then that becomes a problem. Um, I can give you numerous examples. Before that, I want to tell you about a deck that's, uh, you know, people have been talking about it recently a lot, that does have some resource-focused tension. It is limiting, but it's not oppressive. And that is Ticket as Control Warlock. It does oh, have a boy. win condition. Right. Remember, Ticket as Control Warlock is a very effective win condition against fatigue decks that have really slow win condition. If you give the Warlock time to set up its game plan, it's going to win. The problem of Control Warlock is that its win condition compared to Quest Rogue is extremely slow. Other resource-focused win, uh, decks in the current meta are very comfortable they have enough time to execute their own game plans before Ticketus becomes relevant. This is why Ticketus Warlock's presence is not oppressive. It's not really limiting because you have a diverse field of decks, Miracle Rogue and Spell Mage and such. You like you had plenty of decks with that were resource focused that were quick enough to beat it because it won on turn like 14, 15. It doesn't win on turn six like Quest Rogue. So that deck, even though it feels limiting, if you're playing Priest, you feel limited, that attracts complaints. The deck isn't a big problem for the meta. Though, you start to understand why people do complain about it, because it is somewhat limiting. The thing is, 
every card that is introduced in the format and every deck that emerges can limit other decks' existence. You can't avoid it. But when a deck is weak, then Team 5 will consider, okay, this is fine. People are still allowed to play most other classes and feel comfortable playing against Warlock. Uh, a deck with a, I think that I think might become a big problem if it ever becomes too powerful is something like Lifesteal Demon Hunter because its win condition can be quite fast. Uh, and it's obviously it has infinite, near infinite damage, so it's impossible to outlast. But there is one way to beat it with a Lucia, which is a way that a grindy deck with a value-centric win condition can beat a combo win condition that comes online much faster if you find the Elusia. So these are really good examples, I feel, that can uh, uh, help you envision what happens when resource-focused win condition uh, create tension and what kind of battles are, are played out there. Uh, and when it comes to initiative focus, I think it's easy to understand when an aggressive deck or a deck with initiative is really broken, right? When it dominates the early game and does not allow anything else to thrive, it forces all other decks to play reactive mode. We have to try to outlast this. Agro Shaman, back in Tunnel Trog, Totem Golem days, had a really dominant early game. Undertaker Hunter, I don't, need, I don't think I need to explain it, had an extremely dominant early game that made it impossible for other decks to compete with it for early board and was all about it warped the meta into like everything needed to be able to kill a undertaker, or it just or you just couldn't exist. Yeah, and the meta warping is all about the strategy that you can stretch from existing. Um, and there are some yes. historical examples of it. I think Quest Rogue is a great example. I also remember in Knights of the Frozen Throne, in addition to nerfing Druid, they nerfed Fiery Warax to make aggro decks better. Because they didn't have to deal with Pirate Warrior and Jane Druid at the same time. They couldn't really be tuned to beat both. They made Pirate Warrior worse so other aggro decks could exist because they were better against Jade Druid. Fire Warax is a card, one of the strongest cards in establishing early game initiative and denying your opponent from early game initiative. So it's not surprising to see that it was nerfed. Under the context of meta dynamics, it makes sense. It was too powerful of a tool in establishing initiative and denying initiative in every warrior deck. So it was very powerful. But there are also cases, and I think these are the most extreme examples, when decks become super broken. The most broken decks of Hearthstone are often that, is that when they dominate both the initiative battle and the resource battle. A really great example, Knights of the Frozen Throne, Jadruid. It had... An extremely powerful late game that was impossible to outlast for any other resource-focused deck because you had the infinite and scaling Jade Golems. However, it was so strong at denying the opponent's early game initiative as well through its tempo tools as well as cards like Spreading Plague that completely stalled out the opponent. Jade Druid was an extremely dominant late game strategy, but it didn't even lose to the aggressive decks, to the initiative-focused decks, because its initiative-denying tools were so strong. It was super broken because of that reason. Another really good example is Galcron Shaman, back in Descent of Dragons. You had a deck that had really strong initiative-denying tools because of the Hero Power Rush and the Invokes, and it, it, it was able to beat most decks... Off the board. 
The only deck that could compete with it was Face Hunter. And why did that? Why did, could Face Hunter beat Galakrond Shaman back at Descendant Dragons? Because it gave up on the board. It couldn't compete with the board, so it just tried to burn them in the face. That was fascinating to see, because back then I already had this kind of thesis that I'm conveying here, and I could see it live happen in front of me. Oh, the meta just gave up on the early game. The meta understands now that Galakrond Shaman is too dominant in its initiative and is trying to just bypass it through burn with Face Hunter. And if you think about there's a historical example of this too. If we go way back in the day, remember the one bad matchup during Karazhan for Midrange Shaman? Freeze yep. Mage. Freeze, Freeze Mage. Mage. Yeah. Freeze Mage. Midrange Shaman and Karazhan is another deck that was, people call it Midrange, right? But the truth is, it was an excellent initiative focused deck it had that also had golem, a really like you will you will kill people and spirit claws like that was a meta where people said that aggro decks were dead and the reason why aggro decks were dead is because there was a mid what people call a mid-range deck that dominated the aggressive matchups right because normally traditionally people think that aggro beats mid-range because aggro has a, a bigger focus on initiative it is better at taking the board in the early game and snowballing on the mid-range deck. And the mid-range deck doesn't have great removal tools, right? Because it's initiative-focused. It tries to pressure. It doesn't have great reactive tools, so if it falls behind, it can struggle. So that is the traditional matchup. But mid-range shaman, what you call it back then, mid-range shaman, was basically an aggro deck with a great late game. And also, you casually had Maelstrom Portal, Lightning Storm, Spirit Claws with a bunch of spell damage. Yes, you had fantastic ways to deny your opponent initiative and establish your own. So, and also had a pretty scary late game uh, with uh, Thunder Bluff Valiant. Yeah, Valiant. Yeah, it was a really powerful wing addition as well. So that was a really good two-way deck um, that dominated both ends of the meta spectrum. What's interesting, by the way, if you think about how they nerfed Galakrond Shaman the first time, when they took when they took out Mogu, and they made Corrupt Elementalist to, uh, cost more, the deck took out the Mutates, and took out those cards that were just crazy board presence, and they added in Spirit of the Frog. Initiative got nerfed. Let's go for some resources. Now maybe exactly. the deck should have been playing Spirit of the Frog the whole time, but it was interesting to see the metamorphosis where when the broken initiative stuff was removed, they just went for the broken resource stuff instead. Yep, because you need to you need to make an adjustment. Oh, I don't have a free Mogu anymore, and taking and like creating a, a random eight drops on turn four, uh, which blows out the opponent's initiative out of the water. So now I need to be able to have a more consistent late game so that my resource focused win condition is more successful. And when you had Galakorn as well as Shadowwalk, that Dax. Um, win condition was extremely effective in most matchups and very difficult to outlast alongside the weapon damage obviously so that also was a deck that was really powerful so broken decks often what happens with them is that they excel on both ends of the meta spectrum and they become very difficult uh, to deal with and what team five needs to do when that happens is attack one of the ends of the spectrum right it needs to attack one aspect that they're very good at Demon Hunter and Ashes of Outland. You remember my rant? I had a podcast when I ranted about Enrage Warrior 
and Aggro Demon Hunter, which were excellent aggro decks. I called them excellent aggro, aggro decks that turned into combo decks in the late game that were impossible to outlast because they basically had OTKs through Altruist and uh, Bloodsworn Mercenary. And that was an issue with them because they were too good at both ends of the meta spectrum and there was no way to attack them. They dominated the early game, so they destroyed every other aggressive deck or initiative-focused decks. And yet control decks, their resource-focused decks, their dedicated resource-focused decks could not beat them in the late game because they had either infinite damage or near-infinite damage. So once you understand the gameplay elements, right? As I conclude this, once you understand what the gameplay elements are, now you have a deeper understanding of what the meta actually is. Now you have a better understanding of what happens when things go wrong and why they go wrong. So when there's a deck that has that is a power outlier, you're better at identifying what the problem is. And you're better at identifying what needs to be nerfed if something needs to be nerfed. Paladin? Too good in the early game. We needed to hit its early game. They did that. It worked. The problem is it could adjust through the resource aspect of the of its gameplay element in a way that still made it thrive. But the nerfs were effective. It no longer dominates and defines the early game. It's just that it's too strong. It's too well-rounded within the confines of the current meta spectrum. Yeah, there's not enough. Re- there aren't enough tools in this format in general for early games to exist at all. And the best early game tool for pressure was Crab Rider. Then they nerfed it, so now you can just chill. Yeah. So yeah. So the uh, when you have a, a a limited card pool, obviously um, the meta spectrum will be more forgiving, or it will be easier for a deck to dominate if it has this one or two cards that are really strong. So it's more difficult to have a more, like, ideal meta. What is the ideal meta? Uh, An ideal meta is one where there are multiple archetypes, initiative-focused archetypes, and resource-focused archetypes that are able to compete for those gameplay elements in a balanced manner. Like, there is no resource-focused deck that dominates, that has the most effective win condition by far that outclasses all other win conditions. And on the other hand, there is an initiative-focused deck that is the dominant early game board control deck that just beats anyone else off the board and doesn't allow other initiative-focused decks to exist. That is the ideal meta. But obviously, it can be difficult to achieve. But if you understand what you want to achieve, it's far better to achieve it rather than have some vague term, oh, we want this meta to be diverse but we don't really understand what that means. Um, When it comes to designing decks and designing mechanics, there's also a whole theory, and I can like continue speaking for another hour about the subject, uh, what you need to pay attention to, but you can kind of get the hint, right? If you want to design late game win condition, I also threw this uh, question at Alec in uh, our last podcast. When you design a finisher, you need to make sure that the timing of this finisher is not offensive, right? Doesn't limit other finishers, right? Because if you have a finisher that comes online, like Quest Rogue, turn six, seven, they win. And you're designing a finisher that comes online on turn 14, don't expect that turn 14 finisher to be viable in the meta, right? Yeah. And I would say that you can look at, say, turn seven, Dr. Boom, Mad Genius. That's a great example also of a 
it's not a finisher by itself, but when it comes down that quickly, the game is finished. Yeah. So here, here's another question that I'll ask you. Um, and uh, another example why um, the previous, the older archaic terminology just fails. What is poison rogue hat? An abomination. So here's the thing. A lot of people will call poison rogue an agroduck because it kills fast. But the truth is that Poison Rogue is a resource-focused deck. It is not an initiative-focused deck. This deck runs Ice Block. This deck runs Coerce. This deck runs Reactive Tools to deny the opponent's initiative to the board. Now, think about it philosophically. What is the difference between Poison Rogue and Lifesteal Demon Hunter? Both of them are trying to find enough damage to kill the opponent. The only difference is that Lifesteal Demon Hunter does it in one turn to set it up while Poison Rogue deals the damage while accumulating more resources and damage. But both of them look to find enough damage, enough resources to put their opponent at zero. They care very little about the board, so they care very little about their own initiative, right? They just want to find their damage. The fact that Poison Rogue does the damage, accumulated damage through weapon charges over time, doesn't change what the deck is supposed to be. And therein lies the problem of why Poison Rogue feels really bad and very limiting and oppressive to play against even though the deck isn't good. You don't want it to be good because it's another example of a resource-focused deck that has a win condition that comes online way too quickly and is impossible to interact with unless you run a specific Ooze card, right? A tech, a weapon tech or something. That's the only way you can interact with it. So it's a deck that design-wise inherently is inherently problematic because it could become a quest rogue-like oppressor. So when I say, when I complain about Poison Rogue or Zacco hates Poison Rogue, there's actually a logical, even scientific reason why I think that deck is an abomination. Yeah. When I complain about it, it's because I, because fuck Loka Shadows. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, the point is, this is not an aggro deck. This is not an initiative the focus deck at all it is a resource focus deck looking for an otk that's not an otk it is a four turn 40k right kills you in four weapon charges but okay i have i have some questions about historical decks soul demon hunter this is an interesting one it is a resource focus deck hat it is very clearly a resource-focused deck. It is trying to draw damage in order to kill the opponent. It is not. It, it runs AOE tools in order to deny the opponent's yeah. initiative. It has a lot of reactive cards. It had Blade Dance. It was a deck that hit you in the face. And the problem is that people associate hitting with the face, right, as like aggressive and mid-range deck. Only they can hit the face. But do you remember when there was a deck called Control Priest? Right? I do. What's so different between Mind Blast Control Priest and Soul Demon Hunter? Well, Mind Blast Control Priest did play a bunch of minions, like Primordial Drakes and stuff. It did fight for the board, and it did yeah. have AoE. But I guess Shard Shatter Mystic, if you make it really big and gave it wings, then it's a Primordial Drake. What about Dustbreaker, Had Do you forget about Dustbreaker? Hello? Oh, that was a good card. Literally, the original Mystic is Dustbreaker. The That's point true. is that Soul Demon Hunter, even though it hits face, it's not an aggressive or a mid-range. It's not an initiative-focused deck. It's a deck that tries to accumulate damage in order to kill the opponent. The fact that it does it with a weapon and hits it in the face, what's the difference between that and hitting your opponent with a Mind Blast? 
it's damage, right? Yeah. It's off-board damage that goes face. So what's the difference? The point is that Soul Demon Hunter was a deck that's when it comes to its niche in the meta, sat in the resource end of the spectrum. Very much so. It is not reliant on classic mid uh, minion based con- board control. It does not rely on board control in order to win Hearthstone games. It mostly focused on denying the opponents of board control. That is a classic resource-focused deck. Now, notice that under this labeling, you can never be wrong if you understand the concepts. And there is no middle ground. Yes, there are resource-focused decks that are prioritize initiative more than others. Yes, there are initiative-focused decks that like to have more resources available to them. But if you understand what these decks at their core try to do, you're never going to get this wrong. Now, people say, why is this important, Zacho? As I said before, if a deck is too powerful or you're trying to exploit a deck's weaknesses, you need you by understanding its role in the meta, you're going to have a better understanding of what it, you're supposed to do against it. So, Zach, something I wanted to ask about, there are a lot of decks that are actually resource-focused, that people mistake for initiative focus. You look at your Soul Demon Hunters, your Bomb Warriors, so on and so forth, where they're really trying to build these resources over the course of the game, but because they hit face, people are like, oh, that's aggro. Are there any examples you can think of where people mistake a deck for resource-heavy, resource-focused, and they're actually initiative-focused? They're actually looking to fight for board the whole time. Um, I think it's, you're going to find, it's going to be tougher for you to find examples of such cases because it's easier to identify initiative focused decks since they develop board. They all try to develop board in the early game and use their uh, minion advantage and board advantage in order to uh, snowball and leverage that into a victory. So it's going to be difficult for you to find examples that are contradictory to that. Mm. Um, I think usually people are... Okay, give me one. Spiteful Druid. Spiteful Druid is a great example. (laughs) That's actually a great example. Because a lot of people call that like, oh, it's a late game strategy. You run ultimate infestation and such, and you're playing like really big threats or stuff. But um, yeah, it is an initiative-focused deck. But people, you know, will traditionally call it mid-range because it's a initiative focused deck that has a higher curve and a stronger focus on resource but that didn't make it a resource focused deck it was definitely initiative focused i think that combo priest back in savers of old doom might be one great example of a true hybrid where it needed early game board control and it needed the board in order to win but then it also had some resource focus in order to find its combo win condition. So I think that Combo Priest is a great example of a hybrid that people really didn't understand whether it was an aggro deck or a combo deck. And to be honest, that's one example that I would uh, forgive anyone who called it initiative or resource focus because I think it was a true hybrid deck that relied on the board, that needed the board in order to win games in order needed to pressure early in order to snowball, and yet it had a late game plan, a, a real late game plan with a car draw engine and assembling divine spirit and our fire and such. So yeah, um, I would say that's the true hybrid. But examples, other examples don't really come to my to mind. 
But, you know, obsessing over the definitions is, is, you know, is not as helpful as, again, understanding the elements that shape a meta. Once you get that right, you're going to be able to identify them better as the meta develops. When cards are revealed, maybe to next week, there are new cards. Try to identify what could impact the resource battle in the meta. What could impact the initiative battle in the meta. Maybe a really strong one drop could help a class find initiative. Maybe a win condition, a power spike later in the game to could help establish a new strategy that can compete with other resource-focused decks that look for a power spike. And what I'm hoping for is, again, better communication, um, better convey, uh, like, so that players better convey what they actually want from the meta, right? Uh, you know, there was like a tweet discussion about what is the perfect Hearthstone meta. And then people say, oh, when there's, you know, there's diverse classes and, and people are playing their aggro decks and mid-range decks and combo decks and control decks. And that made me, made me cringe a little bit because do you actually understand what it is? What that means? Because a lot of people want something, but they don't understand what they want. So that's what I'm looking to um, establish. And also remember, uh, and it came from this discussion as well, that resource-focused decks are allowed to hit face. They still look to deal damage to the opponent and kill them. They don't have to be fatigue decks. And most of the resource-focused decks that have been successful in Hearthstone metas were not fatigue decks because fatigue deck is a slow deck. It has a slow win condition. If you design other win conditions that are more proactive and are faster, they're going to outclass the fatigue win condition. It makes sense why fatigue decks are not going to be common or successful. It doesn't mean that Hearthstone is failing as a format because we don't have what people define as control. Some people define control as only fatigue. And if you're playing Mind Blast, then you're no longer a control deck because you're killing your opponent. Then guess what? If you're a control deck, based on that definition, you're probably a bad deck. And once you become a good deck, then people call you mid-range or combo because you're actually trying to kill the opponent. So don't look for fatigue and your definition of control to be the ideal meta. No, it's probably going to be outclassed in most metas, you're not going to see fatigue as the best resource-focused win condition. Because if you can find 50 damage and kill them in one turn, that's a far more consistent and effective and faster win condition. Uh, right. That's the and message. if people have a preference for playing attrition fatigue strategies, like, sure, you can have whatever preference you want, but it's not a required part of a healthy meta... It can be something that you require to enjoy the game. And, you know, if you want to do that, you want to do that. That's fine. But it doesn't mean that the absence of any fatigue strategy means a meta is unhealthy by definition. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to convey. And also, sometimes there are tools that help. Uh, and it's it's important that these tools do exist that help. If you have a win condition, if you have a deck with a late game win condition that's slower than another... One of the things that helps depolarize the matchup or make the matchup more uh, competitive is that the deck with the slower win condition is able to outlast whatever or able to handle or disrupt the faster win condition. 
really good example is if you have a burn deck in a late game that tries to kill you, then an armor deck, a deck that can stack a lot of armor, can outlast it even though its win condition is slower. It's able to circumvent uh, and prevent the first, the faster deck from killing them. And that is the way to circumvent that. Another example is combo disruption. Elusia is a really good example of a way where a value-centric deck, a fatigue, a very slow attrition deck, can beat a combo deck through Elusia. The problem with Elusia in terms of design that she's far too powerful in of a win of a, an answer to these win conditions, right? To these faster win conditions. She's like a it's, she's such one a blunt instrument. Oh, right? yeah, she's a very blunt instrument. Obviously, she's useless in init- in matchups against initiative focused decks, but she's far too powerful when it comes to the resource battle. And this is another great example of a card that statistically doesn't look that great, but has an incredible, almost oppressive-like impact when it comes to the resource-focused battle in the Hearthstone meta. And she is very much meta-defining. Well, this has been fascinating, the way I'll put it. And like, I've always, I've, I come from a magic background. I'm used to the idea of, all right, aggro combo mid-range, or aggro control mid-range, and then let's put clear definition to these things. Then you can add combo onto any of them. And it really, you know, makes a lot clearer. But I'd rather talk about things in Hearthstone terms. And it's really just like, do you care about the board or do you care about cards in your hand? And it really comes down to those things, initiative or resources. And then how do you translate those ideas to what actually matters in the game? And how do you approach a matchup or how do you approach deck building? Yep. The other thing is that a lot of people like say, oh, Aggro beats mid-range and beat mid-range beats control, right? And you know, it comes from a from an understanding of okay, so aggro decks are basically initiative focused decks that have a bigger focus on initiative, so they're more likely to run out of resources. So the control deck, which runs removal focused strategy, can outlast them. While a mid-range deck, what people call a mid-range deck, has more of a resource focus and it's harder to run out of resources and therefore it will beat the control deck. But what people don't understand is that sometimes the resource-focused decks have a power spike that overwhelms the opponent. No matter what, they win at some point. And if that happens, if that is the kind of win condition that the resource-focused deck can assemble, then you're much better off being faster than slower, right? Because you're not winning the resource battle as a resource-leaning initiative-focused deck if you're facing, I don't know, seven, eight, eight clowns with taunt, right? You're not beating that. Even if you're even if you're an aggro deck with a lean on resources, nothing's gonna outlast. You're not gonna win the value battle against a clown droid. You have to play for initiative. And this is why like hyper-aggressive decks, for example, are the ones that beat Clown Druid more um, because they reach a power spike that is overwhelming through most strategies that are based on initiative. You're not going to win tempo against uh, 788 Clowns. Uh, so uh, the matchups don't really work that way in Hearthstone at all. And that's not a good way to say, okay, this is a control deck and I just lost, so I need to go slower and have more resources so they cannot outlast me. No, it's not always true uh, in matchup dynamics and in meta dynamics. So 
I just don't like that terminology. I feel that terminology is semi-useful when you're trying to introduce new players to the game and they're trying to label decks and their play styles. But once you get to the Spell Mage territory and the Poison Rogue territory, you can very much easily get lost because the labeling sucks. Who said that labeling was true? Was scientifically correct? It is not. It's it's a holdover from prior learnings that were applied from a different game. And as we know from, well, you want real proof that we need a different way of looking at the game? Look at Classic. Look at Hearthstone Classic and the decks that are good now versus the decks that we thought were good then. And all the discussion there was uh, at the time as to what makes sense now. Uh, Hearthstone is a game that's built around initiative and pressure. And uh, we were approaching it with what we knew from Magic, but Magic is very different in how it has to be approached. Yep. Well, all right. Well, Zach, I think that's going to wind us down. Um, So any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Wednesday, we're going to have a card preview. Uh, We're going to talk about all the cards. And maybe we're going to start using this terminology better. And you start to gather a perspective of uh, how we try to evaluate cards. Of course, even if you know all of those things and you understand this terminology and you understand metadynamics, that doesn't make you the best way, like the best card predictor. No, because uh, it's very difficult to um, to predict how these battles, these meta-defining battles that I talked about are going to play out uh, until you actually see them in the game. But we will try to do that. We will try to evaluate how the new cards are going to impact the meta. And I'm excited to see new cards. I think the format really needs new things. And maybe Shaman gets card draw. I don't know, Hat. Could it get card draw? Because it really needs it. <laughs> I understand we've just spent an entire podcast talking about resources. But this yes. is... This Shaman Yeah, there's a it. problem, Hat. There's a class that cannot get resources. Mm. Yeah. Why is it bad? Hmm. I'm... Uh... Hopeful, but I'm not holding my breath. We'll see. Um, it remains to be seen because, like, if they don't get card draw, Shaman will just be bad. News at 11. Shaman is bad. Surprise. I'm, I'm hopeful they print something, but it needs a lot of help. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much to all of our VS Gold and Patreon members. Uh, let us know in the Discord if you like this episode. It's a little bit different for us, uh, and we wanted to try it out while we had a bit of a lull in the meta unless you you know if you want us next time to just talk about how good paladin is for 30 minutes and then kill a podcast we can do that too um but definitely let us know what you thought and if you want more of these kind of things when we have a moment every expansion or so yeah i mean obviously this subject can continue we we can continue to expand it further and we can discuss other intricacies this was more of an introduction as funny as that sounds so if you love this podcast if you enjoyed this podcast give us feedback tell us that you really liked it and we might consider doing something like this in the future as well like a professor zach appearance yes and and more of me getting the show notes from you saying the content out loud during the show you did an outstanding job hat you did an outstanding job at acting as the audience you you picked up uh very quickly very thank you yeah i've we have been working together for a very long time now the first article that i believe i wrote for the site 
was how to win the mid-range shaman mirror. That so, is true. Or yeah. was it, it? It was either that or one drops in Pirate Warrior. Forget which, but six years been a long time. Mid-range shaman mirror. Concepts. It was because that happened in Karaz, and that was before MSG. In MSG, uh, you're you right. did the you did the patches uh, article. Yes. Also, as it turned out from doing that analysis, I still remember drawing patches is bad. You don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Riveting analysis hat. Riveting. Hey, listen, I explained that and now I'm here. Checkmate. Yep, that is correct. So, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll have another podcast for you next week before the mini set drops. We'll see you around. And big thanks to Steven Sensei for intro and outro. Have a good one. The Data Reaper Podcast is an official production of Vicious Syndicate. Don't forget to sign up and contribute your game data to improve the quality of the weekly Data Reaper report. Instructions are available on our website, along with lots of other weekly content at viciousyndicate.com. Thank you to all of our patrons and data contributors for proving their strength in numbers.